Hi, I'm Jordan. And I'm AJ. You're listening to We Built It That Way, a show about how we shape the places we live and how they shape us, our behaviors, our relationships, our opportunities, and our imagination. And we're back with another episode of We Built It That Way. AJ, I'm just going to get right into it. Yeah. Pandemics. They are hot, hot, hot right now. Everybody's talking about pandemics. That's true. But they're nothing new. No. And historically, they make a pretty lasting impact on the economy and the structure of human settlements. We could point to any major epidemic or pandemic and describe some big changes that came as a result, such as how we moved to straighter street grids after the cholera outbreaks in the um, 1800s. We can point to the tuberculosis crisis at the turn of the 20th century and how sunlight and airflow helped fight that disease and really played a gigantic part in influencing the design of private and public outdoor spaces. And of course, there's countless other examples of this, AJ. So as we do always on the show, we're looking at how the we have shaped the built environment, how it comes to shape us, our relationships, what we experience as possibility. And this is no different when we look at the effects of COVID. And so we're just going to take this episode to talk through some of our observations about that interplay between our built environment, the impact that COVID has had, and how it's sort of shown a light on some of the maybe good and not so good elements of our of our built environment. So let's just, this is going to be maybe an, a grab bag type of episode where we just run through some of our observations, but let's start on a lighter. I don't think any of these are going to be a light note, but like, let's, <laughs> let's get this party started, AJ, with uh, what's something that stood out to you this past couple of years? I think one big thing is, you know, it's become very clear that we don't design and build our cities around outdoor living. We, hmm. we build and design our cities around indoor living. And so when something like this happens and people are really anxious to be able to get some sunshine and get out of the house that you've been in forever and the walls are closing in on you. We don't necessarily have the amount of places to go take refuge and be outside for the sake of being outside that we might like. Um, Hmm. We tend to think about being outside as just getting us from point A to B uh, rather than just being outdoors with the exception of, of park spaces that are more recreational in nature. But if you think about the walk around your neighborhood or the walk to, you know, a nearby business, when we design those places, we clearly are not always setting a priority of making sure the journey is as enjoyable Uh as the destination and that the journey serves a purpose as does getting to the destination. Yeah. I found that more and more just trying to find different routes to places and different ways of getting there. And sometimes the (laughs) the walk outside was more depressing than being stuck inside. Yeah. It would be easy to just like respond and say like, look around the outside is everywhere, you know, but I think it's that we really have a dearth of quality outdoor public spaces to spend our time. 
I've seen statistics that streets and roads make up something like 20 to 30 percent of a given city's total area. Mm-hmm. That's also like 80 percent of the total public space in a lot of cities. That gets into another um, observation of mine from the past couple of years. And that was how exciting it was in some ways to see a number of cities putting in overnight these sort of slow street schemes where they were using cheap materials to block off streets to through traffic and allow them to become these areas that people could go out, socialize, go for a walk. And, you know, if you're lucky enough to be in one of those places, or maybe it just naturally occurred in your neighborhood, you could see the difference. So I think that that was sort of like this acknowledgement that like, oh, we actually do have a lot of public space and it's up to us to decide how we want to use it. But right now, before, and I guess once again, most of that space just gets put to use for automobile throughput. I agree. And I think one thing that I read discussed in a couple of really thought-provoking articles was this discussion of how this concept of open streets or slow streets was something that appealed to a lot of people. And it made a more active atmosphere in places that didn't really feel very active. However, there were also the unintended consequences created by, quote unquote, privatizing that space Mm -hmm. um, for this restaurant and that cafe. And, And on one hand, that was very beneficial. On another hand, it could take places where people, especially certain subgroups of people, already feel uncomfortable and then make them feel even more uncomfortable because they are reserved for customers and not for people that Mm -hmm. are just transversing the area. Also, there were a couple of really provocative conversations where people shared ideas about how doing this kind of exacerbated the spatial inequalities in our cities. And, you know, Bloomberg was one and there were others as well that took a look at this and mapped where they had created these streets and this reconfiguration of that space in different cities. However, it was not done in an equal matter across those communities. I know, shocker, right? In America. So in very affluent areas, that's where you tended to see more of that idea. Um, And in other neighborhoods where they were less affluent, there were, were more people of color, people that are not the people at the forefront of the complaining about things like this were left out. It also kind of sparked debates about who really benefits from these types of policies because not everyone had the luxury of being able to work from home. And there were still people that were reliant on getting to work in an efficient manner. And that was impacted by some of these trendy ideas. So it's it's not necessarily that the ideas were, were bad, but there are other consequences of decisions. And this was a good time to point out that often when we are adapting or reacting to something that's going on in our environment and we create innovative approaches, we don't always think of everything and we don't always think of everyone. Yeah, well, there's a lot to talk about there, which we should maybe dwell on some of those. We'll come back to the privatization of public space. And I think we should probably just do a whole episode about that. Yeah, agree. And, you know, a lot of people are pointing out that the discussions of safe streets takes one very important variable into account, which is that there aren't weapons 
i.e. cars zooming down your street and causing direct physical bodily damage, that's not the only measure of a street's safety for a given individual. And very unfortunately and extremely high profile was the case of George Floyd, who was murdered in the street, whose safety was not determined by, I mean, yes, by how safe the street was from a pedestrian standpoint, but like there are other variables that make up how safe you are moving around. There's plenty, there's been plenty of discussions on how Throughout this country's history, many black individuals have felt much safer traveling in in a vehicle where they can maintain some greater sense of anonymity passing through certain parts of certain cities and certain states, that the passage through public space, unprotected as it were, like doesn't grant you. So Mm -hmm. that's like a commentary on the fact that we live in a racist society that was forged from racist beginnings and that continues to be etched into the fabric of the city and is true. And it's also true that it's true that we need to turn streets into places that people of all backgrounds can physically not just feel, but be safe, safe from cars. Like little kids can go on a bike ride and their parents don't have to freak out Mm -hmm. about it. And that all of our neighbors can walk down the street or jog and not have to be pulled over for doing so or fearing much worse. Right. So ab- excellent points. Yeah. That, that vulnerability is, we talked about the pandemic situation as making us very vulnerable, but you've said it very well. We were already vulnerable and we have made ourselves vulnerable by the way that we have not addressed mm-hmm. these issues and we've allowed them to continue to to ferment over time. Yeah. You know, and another thing is when we talk about mobility, one of the the first things that that some people in cities thought about with the pandemic uh-huh. was this is scary, however, I can always get in my vehicle and feel safe. Right. But you didn't hear as much talk about What do we do for people that are reliant on transportation that by its very nature exposes them to other people, people that are reliant on public transportation, people that are reliant on walking? And I think that says a lot about who's controlling the narrative. Yeah. A lot of media coverage was like coverage of the problems that the professional class was dealing with. Yes. If you're in a pandemic situation, which is a national health crisis, shouldn't we be focused on the most vulnerable of the population? And I, I don't know that we necessarily did that. You know, we we were. And you know how we did it? We said, thanks, heroes. You're heroes. Here's hero pay for a month or two. The heroes of today aren't wearing capes. Yeah. Keep keep going, heroes. Yeah. You're essential. We really need you to keep bringing us stuff. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> or otherwise exactly. serving us, right? I mean, I think we could have a whole side discussion about how we're our, we live in an extremely stratified society and how there is like a whole new layer of that in the height of the pandemic where there was like a work from home class. And I'm not even talking mm-hmm. about the capital owning class. That's its own economic interests. But there is even within the working class, this stratification, right? At people right. who bring you your stuff and are at greater risk of disease and also at greater risk, like when we're talking about traffic violence, which went up uh, during yes. the pandemic. That's another good point. Do you want to yeah. talk about that? We're yeah, just hopping let's all talk over about the place. that. 
Hi, I'm Buzz Griffin, host of Disruptify, the startup podcast that's breaking the mold. Join me for a special episode about innovation and cities Cities of of the future. Here's a teaser. Imagine a grocery store that you can drive through. Your car is the grocery cart instead of employees, robots. Imagine a city where everything's an app. Imagine no cities at all. You are your own city and your own countryside. Imagine flying cars for real this time. Imagine robots, robot cars, robot servants, robot dogs, computers that you wear, an algorithm that replaces the government. Imagine if your car was also your house and the windshield was like a big screen TV. Caught your attention? Subscribe now to Disruptify. With me, Buzz Griffin, host of Disruptify. So um, traffic fatalities went up, I believe, both of the past two years. Wasn't it an all-time high? Somewhere very close to it, if, if not an all-time high, despite fewer people driving since the, the onset of the pandemic, which seems very counterintuitive, but it makes sense because we've talked about congestion in, in previous mm-hmm. episodes. And ironically, congestion's kind of like one of the few things keeping our overbuilt car infrastructure safer than it otherwise would be. Yeah. It slows us down in certain circumstances and slower traffic right. means like less deadly collisions or whatever they occur. And so like keeping that demand like below peak demand allowed much faster travel and removed that barrier to to danger really that congestion presented. And like there right. was all these kind of narratives in the media of, well, people are just angrier because of COVID. Probably some people are. But like, it's, it's not a very systems view of the situation, right. which we're always trying to talk about. Our built environment shapes our behavior. Yes, you getting mad and going out and driving, that's going to make a difference. But like the real difference is made by people, uh, maybe fewer people on the road having more space to, to take greater risks. They, they are taking greater risks, but we take risks based on the environmental cues. Correct. So Correct. Uh, that was yeah, one of totally the agree. very interesting outcomes and mm-hmm. it should be i think about how we continue to spend all this money expanding and expanding and expanding our highways and our and our urban roadways and at the same time there's all these people talking about the future of work once again for a small class of people is the work from home right. and therefore theoretically i don't know what fewer cars on the roads like should we just expect a continued upsurge in traffic violence? Right. And pedestrian deaths? Yeah, and you know, another kind of offshoot of what you were just talking about with the whole future of work. How our regulatory tools in cities have prevented our abilities to adapt in some ways. And so this whole discussion of what the future of work was going to look like also highlighted and and brought attention to the fact that we've used policy in our cities to make things like adaptive reuse of, of buildings very difficult, especially in, in major metropolitan areas. 
there was this sort of identity crisis about, well, what happens with all of the areas that are planned for retail that may not come to fruition? And what happens with housing people who are currently unhoused? What happens with the office spaces when now the quote unquote traditional office has been turned on its head? And so we saw a Mm -hmm. lot of discussion about how to repurpose things but repurposing things is something that we deliberately by design make difficult in our communities because we're still so Great fixated yes. on separating everything. Yeah. Not just separating everything. Well, separating everything for sure, but then like making every instance extremely inflexible. Mm-hmm. Yep. I'm sure that there were people talking about converting office parks into residences or whatever. But like even on the specifics of those cases, like they're not designed to be then subdivided into like residential units that would be cost prohibitive just to take like a one example. And then when you think about, you know, the Walmart or pick your big box store, those have a shelf life in terms of the they're not designed to last very long. Right. It's a throwaway design to begin with. It's set in a sea of parking and it's Mm -hmm. just so expensive, like we're saying. We push everything very far apart, but then we don't really let, like legally, we don't let anything flex and evolve and mature. Right. And, and right. But then even, even if we remove the legal restriction, there's just this like physical reality that so little covers so much space. Mm-hmm. And then there's the, the other complication to that too, which is that our, you know, our processes are really designed to squash innovative ideas. So even if you had a a great idea for repurposing a facility into housing Mm -hmm. or something else, good luck, because even if you have the, you know, financial backing and the mental fortitude to endure doing something that's very much by definition against the grain, oh, by the way, there's also these hearing processes Uh that you're going to need to go through and, and you need to convince everyone else that they're okay with this. Um, before we'll consider granting you a permit to do so. So yeah, I think if we are talking about creating resilient cities, um, which is the word that everyone's using coming out of this, we really haven't even created an environment that's conducive to that. A resilient city is a city where failure isn't catastrophic. And where you can have and probably will have a series of, you know, small random failures that happen all the time or at irregular intervals. But the system is as a whole not dependent on that one variable succeeding or failing, right? Like random things are going to happen. But we've seen with our supply, you know, to take it global, our supply chains is all this just in time. It's efficient if everything is is working, but that efficiency model is the opposite of a resiliency model that needs redundancy in the face of of disruption. We needed extra hospital beds for a ton of extra people needing hospital beds all at once, not to mention people who have cancer and like other emergency room visits. But like it's the same thing with our cities. Like we don't allow any flexibility don't you I think you've probably noticed this in your time working with cities and and just looking back on the history of cities like office parks were a really a big deal at one point and like kind of out on the fringes and maybe they're not I don't know if maybe people are still doing them but like there's always kind of a new mm-hmm. product 
that's emerging yep. and it's, oh, that was so 20 years ago. Now we're approaching it. And it's like, we're just sort of maybe trading out one fragile model for another rather than saying, let's look back through the types of places that have withstood centuries of economic changes. Right. Speaking of economic changes too, you know, we really saw in this time, not to say that everything was negative, we did see a lot of adaptation and resiliency and innovation and, you know, people pulling together uh, as neighbors and as businesses to, to try to come up with more mm-hmm. solutions for keeping themselves afloat during this this time. And what's interesting is a lot of the innovation that we saw happen there were things that ordinarily the the regulatory structures within cities would have required special approvals and permit applications and hearings and special considerations and variances and things along those lines. Whether you're talking about the um, the ideas of you know curbside pickup and um, repurposing parking lots in order to make sure that people could still stay open and deliver uh-huh. services to people that needed it. People with different types of businesses um, hosting and promoting one another, kind of cross-promoting. You know, it's interesting when we look back on it now because a lot of these innovations that happened happened because someone within those cities said, you know what? Right now, these laws and rules mm-hmm. um, and codes and books, this doesn't matter right now. This is what matters, and let's just do it. We'll figure it out later. And so in a time of pressure, people opted to disregard some of those regulatory tools. So it's evidence that we can, if we really are motivated uh-huh. to do something differently, to do that. Right. And it'll be interesting to see if that same level of intensity survives in the next couple of years, which could lead to actually breaking up those regulatory tools into something that's actually usable and adaptable for the people in those in those cities. Mm-hmm. I'll just think about back to your comment about privatizing some of that public space that, that we've talked about. I think there's a way to deal with that. And like work with the feedback of like, okay, immediate changes that bring the private sphere outside the retail or restaurant, for example, experience into the outside rights of way are generally pretty big and wide. And we sort of don't think about them that way because of how much space cars take up and they squeeze the people to the margins. And then it's like this, I don't think it should be this competition between people walking and people sitting and we should talk about how the public realm is not public if you have to pay to sit or be a part of it but like Mm -hmm. in my opinion you know this is going to be dependent on the urban form of a place but like not every street has to have regular car throughput Uh and you can have places where cars have access if they live there they're making deliveries and still have it be like 95 percent pedestrian I think we should totally rethink the whole the whole streetscape is what I'm saying. Maybe if a place is already starting to demonstrate some capacity to be a, a place, that's a, like one of our best opportunities to look at and be like, okay, well, this doesn't have to be a car throughput area. It's kind of like what they're doing in Barcelona with the Superblocks idea, which is car traffic on every mm-hmm. third street. And then within those nine square blocks, it's mostly pedestrian. 
Right. We have right. A, a lot of opportunities to, to go in that direction. We do. We do. But AJ, speaking of cars driving through mm-hmm. the public realm and places that would otherwise be places, uh, let's talk about the way that we just became like even more of a drive through society, especially mm-hmm. early on and, you know, for the first year plus of the pandemic. Right. I don't know what the stats are on permits for drive through places across the country, but like for a while there, a lot of businesses you could only access by the drive-thru, including um, things like testing for COVID. Right. Yeah. What, what do you think about that? This is no surprise in that it it just shows our point of view collectively, mm-hmm. which is just, again, the assumption that everyone is going to be behind the wheel. And so it makes sense to do this and it's very convenient. But you quickly saw an outcry about that. And this demand for alternative ways for people to go get their COVID testing done without being in a vehicle, Uh um, being able to walk up and have it done. You know, how do you safely navigate transportation coordination for people to come get tested that don't have a a way to do that? So I, I think that was an initial oversight, clearly, that sparked some immediate pushback from people saying this is not something that works for everyone. And I don't know that I ever saw, not that I surveyed this, of course, but I don't know that I ever saw something truly super effective that people were pointing to as the model for how to make that work effectively. I I think every community struggled with that. Right. Because the problem is a hundred years of automobile centric design Mm -hmm. (laughs) in all of our communities. So it wasn't like going to be overcome in a series of crafty solutions to a pandemic, right? Right. And that's what this is all about. Like one of the ways that the pandemic or the effects of the pandemic was exacerbated is this car oriented design. It made it harder for some people to get to testing facilities because they might not have had a car. And speaking of transportation, public transit budgets were slashed across the country and service was really paired back. Mm -hmm. And this is going to be breaking news, but a lot of people don't have like a choice between taking public transit or taking a car. It's not like they just stop running and they're like, well, shit, I got to, I guess I got to drive this time. Right. And most people don't just go A to B, like being their job and back to A, just like you don't take car trips, for example, if you're listening and you drive car just to work and back. You know, that was another one of these places where fragile system of underfunded, undersupported transit and a development pattern that also doesn't truly support real reliable transit in most places. Right. Really showed when we started getting cutbacks to to already like insufficient public transit service. Absolutely. Hey guys, uh, let's just take a break from the noise. In these unsettling and trying times, the future is uncertain. One thing you can always count on is the We Built It That Way podcast. Since 2021, our family has been an essential part of your family. We may be far apart, but we're in this together. Now, more than ever, as we attempt to build back better, We Built It That Way is here for you when you need us most. Literally anything you need. Just call us. 
We want to be wanted. Kind of like heroes, just waiting to be summoned. You're a hero too. Isn't that nice? In times like these, us heroes, well, we've got to stick together. After all, we're family, right? Please, subscribe. Tell your friends to subscribe. Don't forget about us. That kind of leads to a another thing, which is, you know, the immediate thoughts behind a lot of these decisions were, again, about keeping people distanced. Uh-huh. And so it was the obvious answer. People can't be in close proximity to one another. So this is what we do to keep them out of close proximity to one another. But not finishing that with, however, before we proceed, what are some other effects of this that we might need to anticipate and plan for? So speaking of the whole, you know, fixation on close proximity, there was a lot of time spent at the beginning of the pandemic. We saw this all over the news, kind of the blame of, well, you know where you're not safe. And that is in areas where there is density. And I know you wanted to bring that up and talk about that a little bit. Yeah. Well, I, it took us this long to get to social uh, distancing, which was like one of the phrases of the pandemic era. And I think we'll get to the density specific piece in just a second, but I guess it's kind of reflected in all of this, this like initial idea that the virus spreads when people are in contact. Duh. Yes, it does. So social distancing is necessary. Yes, that's true. So anything that normally has people close together, I guess, is like now not not cool. Hey, man, that's not cool. And we kind of like our responses to it were, like you said, uh, maybe I shouldn't live around as many people. We got to close the parks. Can't have people spending time in the parks we started cutting back on public transportation because who's going to go sit on a bus with people. It's like the car is our one, our, um, it's our sacred cow. It's our sacred cow of physical distancing of not sharing airspace with another Mm -hmm. human. Well, I mean, let's just call it what it is when things like this happen and people are panicked and they're scared and they're uncertain. Um, there always needs to be, kind of a bad guy or a villain. Mm-hmm. And in this case, density was the villain. And did you say Disney or density? D- I said density. <laughs> nice try. I thought you said Disney, but <laughs> <laughs> density was the villain. And it wasn't until quite a bit of time went by and we really started to see the devastating impacts of this pandemic on rural populations that that nonsense and Mm -hmm. that rhetoric was kind of disproven and then fell out of favor it was waiting to be grabbed like and and run with you can go through the history of pandemics in at the least at the very least this country and watch the affluent flee to more rural areas or smaller towns like that definitely happened early on there was a lot of reporting that people are fleeing cities of course if you looked more closely it was like rich people who had the means and were interested in doing so did so. And it was like a very much like the end of cities, the end of density, everyone gets a backyard or whatever. I have a few thoughts on, on that. Like one of the things that we just were talking about was how fragile so many of our systems 
were and then became exposed for being even more so. The transportation system that many people rely on, the, the mass transit, started to crumble. And it already wasn't very good. Why? Because we have very low population density in most of our cities. You need a certain level of density to make transit viable. I mean, we talked about the inflexibility of our development patterns and how we separate things far apart and how it's it's very hard to flex from one use to another over time. It tends to correspond with like, I guess what we'd call higher density than than we currently have in most places. It's just that we have this generally kind of like binary idea of what density is. Right. It's like a zero or a one rather than a dial. And zero is, I guess, the comfortable subdivision with their backyard or it's Manhattan high rises. I'm walking here. I'm walking here. Up yours, you and that's one of the things that I think, I guess that binary is not particularly helpful because it, those sort of binaries sort of make a person step in and like have to argue one side or the other. Mm -hmm. uh, whereas like I've seen a number of papers published talking about like this kind of spiky development pattern that we have as being particularly not helpful for pandemics mm -hmm. and that we'd be far better off with a density level somewhere in between that's not so spiky but that's more well distributed where you yep. spend less of your time going far like in our current model we make a lot of trips that are very far mm -hmm. and we interact with people who are also making trips that are pretty far because we have these like centralized hubs for where we do the shopping centralized yep. hubs for where the white collar workers have their jobs rather than a system where there's more shorter trips that are done largely on foot and your footprint is is smaller. I think when we think about density and proximity to something like this, everyone stops at more people equals more exposure. Uh-huh. And we don't really get past that point to the point where we're also having dialogue and understanding of things like density means more complete neighborhoods where people have easier access to the things they really need now as much as ever, uh -huh. or more density uh, of a general nature means that there are more people in a neighborhood that are better acquainted with one another and are looking out for one mm -hmm. another. Really, that should be a common thread in all of our city issues that we're discussing. Mm -hmm. Really, it's an argument for that kind of middle mm -hmm. on the spectrum of density. Yeah. Because when our idea of density is is just an apartment complex and nothing more, or you know, just a big box and nothing uh -huh. more, we then mandate these huge parking lots that essentially we're choosing that over yeah. anything else. Yeah. But by incorporating more gentle density, we've seen evidence of neighborhoods that there's a lot smaller area required for the cars generated by all of those people living there to go. Yeah. And so you don't have to choose between car storage and outdoor space. You can actually have some mm -hmm. of both at a reasonable level. Yes. And so the neighborhoods that did that well, you know, especially pre-World War, we really see those hold up better and we see the types of neighborhoods and the dynamics of those neighborhoods as very different from what we are churning out 
in full force mm-hmm. off of the assembly line today. Yeah, there's there's a lot more to talk about with housing types and density and all that, but density was definitely one of those things that came up early mm-hmm. um, in the pandemic. We're nearing the end of um, time for this episode, AJ, but any last things that you wanted to, to highlight that we didn't get to today? I think we really touched on most of it. Um, I know this was kind of an unusual episode for us. We were kind of all, all over mm-hmm. the place. So thanks for bearing with us. I think, you know, for me, the big takeaway is how this really needs to start reshaping our thought processes when we encounter adversity and we are trying to plan um, on a community wide level Mm -hmm. to not stop with the first kind of practical level of thought that's required of situations like this. But to actually go deeper about it and to have some of those harder conversations about the unintended consequences of what we are about to do or what we are doing. Yes. I think for me, the thing that comes to mind that we didn't talk about that was really starkly apparent early on in the pandemic was Mm -hmm. it's like two things tied together. It's the outdoor air quality and the noise levels in cities And Mm -hmm. obviously, those changes were the result of gigantic human tragedy. And we should have recognized from that that cities aren't necessarily loud. It's the cars and automobiles and motors that are loud. They, They make our places louder. So we can, you know, we could think about how we have a say in how loud our cities are allowed to get by maybe restricting how fast vehicles are allowed to go and where they're allowed to go. Another thing is that, you know, is the the air quality is really tied to that. When fewer people were on the roads, less air pollution, like also terrible inputs, but, you know, some outputs that we could point to and say like, oh, it's possible to reduce the amount of of pollution that that we put out. But it's not so easy as just like telling people not to drive. It's, It's more systemic fixes, but it's just that the level of air pollution, the level of noise that we have in cities is not necessarily an inevitability. Yeah, well said. Well, all right. That's all we're going to talk about for this episode. It's time for homework. Your homework part A is check out the show notes for any resources, reading materials to go further in this topic um, as usual. And your other piece of homework is to go out and not get COVID. Just just don't get it. And don't pass, if you get it, don't pass it on. Definitely don't pass it on. That's your homework, okay? Good luck. Look it up if you need help. (laughs) We're getting out of here. You can find us on social media at We Built It Pod, some of the social media anyway. I'm Jordan. I'm AJ. And you are listening to We Built It That Way. See you next time.